to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. For ghosts in love. For ghosts in love. Because it's Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm so excited to be spending Valentine's Day with one of my one of my bestest friends and recording mm. podcasts. Talking about nice things. Like lovely things. Lovely things like like love. And hearts and murder and murder. It's murder. A right? lot of murder. Today. It's just murder. Big old, big old. Probably eighty six eleven in the hearts, huh? Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Well, you know, I could say there's some broken hearts in this one. Ooh, broken hearts. Yeah. We hate to we hate to see hate it. Hate to see it. Not on Valentine's Day. No, but uh, that's what we got. Oh boy. Well, folks, we're 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 so excited to to bring you a another thematic episode. We try to always be able to like be a be. With the themes when it comes mm. down to that. We just so far happens that Valentine's Day is, is actually a Monday, which is our release day today. So exactly. we're so excited. Beautifully done. Um, and so we'll try to do more of these in the future. But, um, you know, if you want to continue helping mm. us do more of these in the future. How can they do that, Adam? Do you know, do you like how I, my segues into the, each week is getting more creative, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's good. Um, well, they can help us by heading over to patreon.com oh. slash anyway mystery machine. And for as little as $3 a month, they can, um, they can be a, a patron. Yep. If you sign up today at our second tier or higher, you get access to our first two mini episodes. Oh, the, and uh, they were quite good. The Haunting of the Belasco Theater and then The Haunting of the Brooklyn Apartment. Yeah. That was just... I thought, that, guys, that is a That Brooklyn Apartment, a... like, got me really weirded out. Yeah, I didn't care. After. I mean, I, I cared for in the sense that it was good, but I didn't care for it because I yeah. don't like ghosts. So be sure, if you want those two episodes, you can only get those on the Patreon, so be sure to jump do on the Patreon to... To do it, to do it to it. Episode 31. Here we are. Episode 31. Look at us go. We're just slamming through New York City proper. Yes. And uh, today, for Valentine's Day, we're doing a Valentine's Day crime. Um, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) And according to the author of the book, The Bell of Bedford Avenue, by oh, I know. the Bell of Bedford, Bedford Avenue, <laughs> by Virginia A. Connell. By Virginia A. Connell. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I do declare. I do declare. The vapors. <laughs> um, uh, McConnell says that at the time of this case, there wasn't a person alive who wasn't following it. Oh, my word. Yeah. What year are we in? We are in 1902. We are in, in 1902. 19- Father built a house. <laughs> That's a ragtime reference. In 1902, I, New York City. Ragtime. McConnell writes very vocally of this period, and she writes, uh, I just love this. If you were a sentient being in the first decade of the 20th century, you'd be listening, singing, dancing to Scott Joplin's music. The energetic Theodore Roosevelt was your president. You probably went to the circus or to a vaudeville presentation or to an early silent picture show or to one of the many hotels that held regular dances. And we will be spending our time in a hotel today again. Ooh, it's Valentine's Day. Why wouldn't you spend a night in the Well, hotel? there you are. Hey. Uh, we are going to be spending our time in a Glen, at, at Glen Island Hotel, which was located at 8892 Cortland Street, and which was a Rain's Law Hotel. Pop quiz. Anyone remember what a Rain, Rain's Law Hotel was? I don't. Rain's Did Law, you mention it on the show? I, I feel like we briefly mentioned it. Um, I mean, you say we as it. You mentioned it. I mentioned it briefly. I don't remember that phrase ever. <laughs> I think I mentioned it possibly... Um, in the the episode with old Shakespeare and Frenchie, but I don't think I really explained much of what it was. I think I just was like, "No, no, no, rains locks." I'm already researching this one, and it's a little bit of an, an anachronistic thing to have oh. called the other one a rains law because, well, okay, so a rains law hotel 
was a way of circumventing a restriction on consuming alcohol on Sundays, which honestly was just really screwing over lower classes because at the time it was a six day work week with one free day, Sunday. And so it's the only day you have off and you can't drink on it, which is just really upsetting for everyone. Um, And you couldn't sell alcohol except in a hotel or a lodging house with a minimum of 10 rooms that also just happened to serve some alcohol with a complimentary, like with a meal, like a complimentary meal. Wasn't that like you can't serve alcohol? Wasn't that like a law for like a long time, like into the 90s? I remember as a kid when like, we're like, you couldn't like buy liquor, like liquor stores weren't open on Sundays. I don't remember that. I feel like I should Google that. That's a Google. So, so says Wikipedia. These are called blue laws. Yes. And um, New York, the ban for that's different for every state. Yeah. So I'll just go to New York because it was a New York podcast. <laughs> the ban on Sunday sales had been had been in existence from 1656 um, when the implementation of the Dutch colony of the Netherlands, but was voided after 320 years as unconstitutional and unanimous decision by the state's highest court in 1976. Wow. Um. Alcohol sales for the consumption off-premises are not permitted between 3 a.m. and 8 a.m. on Sundays, while on-premises sales are not permitted between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. on any day. Prior to 2006, off-premise alcohol sales were forbidden until until noon on Sundays, and liquor wine stores were required to be closed the entire day. Because grocery stores are not permitted to carry wine and liquor, the order essentially meant that only beer and alcohol malt beverages could be purchased at all on Sundays. Relatively few parts of New York actually permit alcohol sales at a time permissible under the New York state law. Most counties have more restrictive blue laws of their own. Weird. Remember go. when I lived in Pennsylvania for a spell, like outside Philly, that also had like some crazy blue laws. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I, living in Philly was so crazy because I lived in Philly as right. well for a year and it was like you couldn't find liquor. No, it was, it was it, weird, weird. Blue there was laws. like one place to buy beer. Oh, gosh, it was weird. Yeah. It was very weird. Um, but yeah, so essentially, this blue law is semi-circumvented with the Reigns law, which is this idea, again, you get complimentary meals and a drink. Um, and uh, so even though this law wasn't in effect until 1896, you remember Carrie Brown was murdered in a hotel that I kind of, I think I'd, I'm pretty sure I described it as a Reigns law hotel. Um, but it's the same idea, right? As a result, Rain's Law Hotels are pretty much synonymous by a certain point with shady places where you check in as a couple, quote, with no luggage, unquote. Oh. I.e. extramarital trysts and sex workers and clients and that kind of thing. Fun fact that has nothing to do with this, but I do think is a fun fact, so I'm going to say it. The meal rule could be met with the least expensive materials and the most loose definition of a sandwich. In 1902, our friend Jacob Rees wrote of the stupidity of this law, saying that it would, it's stupid because it allows a man to put a piece of brick between two slices of bread and call it a sandwich, which apparently was not an unheard of practice. <laughs> Basically, like this is the original Cuomo dog, which I think is hilarious. Um, <laughs> so Glen Island fits the definition beautifully. Um, Friday, February 14th, 1902, three couples register as man and wife in the hotel. Our couple was known on the register as Jay Wilson and wife of Brooklyn, New York, and they go to room 12. Now, per the bellhop, uh, a man named George Washington, 
who was subbing for his brother that night. He said that the woman wore a big black hat with a dark veil that obscured her face and hair, but he still got a decent look at her as she went up the stairs. She also wore a black waist-length Eton jacket and a black dress. So very elegant. At about 10.30, room 12 orders room service. The woman opens the door just enough for her hand to be seen, but George Washington got the impression she might not be fully dressed. Um, she ordered lemon soda and matches, and he brought them to her. About an hour later, he thinks he smells gas on the floor, so he walks to room 12, finds the door unlocked, and lights a match, which seems like a really stupid idea if you're smelling gas, and you're like, oh, let's investigate here. What's happening here? I guess I'll light this open, <laughs> put this open flame. Yeah, really. Um, but he does it. He doesn't light on fire, which is good. Uh, and he doesn't see the woman anymore, but he does see the man lying on the bed, and he thinks he might be dead. So Washington does the right thing. He immediately goes and gets help. He goes to the night manager. Another another one. Another one. These, you know, these these bellhops like get in a row. it. These bellhops like, nope, I'm not gonna touch not, this. Not body. not here. Nope, not me. I do not get paid enough for this. <laughs> yeah, talk about above your pay grade. Um they get so yeah, he gets the night manager, a man named John Earl, and a waiter named John Anima. Anima? Not really sure. They get closer to the unconscious man, and they don't see a wound, but they do see blood and vomit on the pillowcase. So, like, they're not, they're not thrilled. Um, so they call Dr. John V. Sweeney, who's a local 24-hour doctor that they call whenever something's wrong and they don't want to call the cops. Uh, for unknown reasons, Sweeney takes nearly two hours to arrive. So it's now, like, 1.15 a.m., Doctor examines the guy. He finds the man is shivering, shaking, showing signs of asphyxiation. There's also the smell of chloral hydrate in the room. And at the time, it was a commonly used sleeping aid. Um, so he surmises that the man had fallen, hence the blood. Doctor washes the wound, says, you should probably call an ambulance. Uh, nobody does. Uh, Earl, the night manager, doesn't want to cause a fuss. And the doctor leaves at 2.30 a.m. 7 a.m. Someone is sent to check on him again. And now there's more blood on the sheets and pillows. So they send for the doctor again. He arrives much more quickly. This is insane that they didn't go on Right? He arrives much more quickly this time. Gets there around 7.30 a.m. And now in the literal light of day, he realizes it's not a wound from a fall. It's a bullet wound. Which, like, I don't know. Feels like you could have figured that out at 1.30 in the morning when you were called if you Got that match that George Washington lit up a few minutes ago with like help. So there was no there was no lights in the room. No, I guess not. Or which is kind of weird when you think about like they're 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 gas lights. It's nineteen oh two. Yeah, there should be. There's some sort of lighting. Why didn't they? Yeah, why? I don't know. It's very odd. Maybe Um, maybe he smelled the gas, but maybe something wasn't working. I don't know. Yeah, but. You should turn it on to examine your patient. No, I hear you. Maybe and it, maybe working. he did. Maybe it wasn't. Okay, well, that, which explains the gas smell. Right, that's true. That there was a little bit of a, a disconnect between the the. I don't know. Well, still, you would think you get a candle and you just put it really close to the guy. Yeah, and you're like, I mean, oh, like, it's a bullet wound. Like, oh, I get it. You're bleeding. I'm a doctor. I think logically, as a doctor, I should try to find out why you're bleeding and not just assume you fell. You fell into your bed. Fucking with idiot. this head. Yeah. Um. So. The bullet had entered the back of this guy's head from about two inches left of the ear at an angle towards the chin. There was a burn mark around the wound, but no powder marks, which suggests that the gun would have been like right against the man's head. Yeah, point blank. Exactly, point blank, a smack against the person, Um, and it's also an angle that's like really awkward. So like this isn't self-inflicted. Now, unfathomably to me, this doctor 
has to leave to get his medical instruments. He didn't bring them, which I don't understand. Like, how? I can't. <laughs> this guy. Like, this guy. First time shows up two hours late. I'm so sorry, you guys. I was like in the middle of something. <laughs> what were you in the middle of? I mean, just uh, something. Something. I can't, I can't really talk about it. But aren't you a 24-hour doctor? Dude, I was in the middle of something. <laughs> he comes back and he's like, all right, cool. Uh, well, I got to go get my, my tools. Why didn't you bring it? I didn't think I needed them. Right. I was already here. Why would I, have to... I know what was happening. I didn't think I needed them this time. He fell, obviously. <laughs> this is the worst doctor Yeah, ever. it's terrible. So he didn't bring them. He goes back to get them. He returns at 8.30 a.m. He cannot find the bullet in the wound, and nobody can find a gun in the room. So finally, at 9 a.m., someone calls an ambulance. And by now, the shift has changed over, and the day clerk, John Hagena, is the only person with any sense who thinks to look through the man's clothes for clues about his identity. No one's bothered so far. Everyone's just like, this guy. So I guess there's like two things that infuriate me in murder cases. Like one is when people are like all up in people's business and the mm-hmm. other is when they're not enough in people's business. Right. There's a happy medium. Can everyone. there be a happy medium where it's like, I'm not too, I'm just going to find the essentials, like right. the identity of this human being. Right. That I'm, that I'm, that's bleeding and right. bonding. God. So what he finds is $32, some coins, a note signed by a Ruth. Hey, Ruth. Business cards indicating that the man was 20 years old, named Walter S. Brooks. And was a merchant with Brooks and Wells at 17 J Street in Manhattan. For the record, they still don't call the police. Instead, they call the number on the business card and end up talking with Henry Harry Cohen, who is Brooks's business partner. And Cohen calls the Brooks family home and tells Walter's father, Thomas W. Brooks, what has happened. And he goes to the hotel immediately. Now, in a story of medical incredible stupidity, um, the ambulance they called took two hours to arrive, clearly run by the same two hours. <laughs> You guys, if you want something done, call us two hours prior. Like, right. make a fucking reservation. <laughs> like, medical, medical, medicine doesn't happen, you guys. Right. All right? We need, we need a reservation. And we'll honor it, but two hours. Oh, I, I just, I don't two understand. Um, so two hours later, ambulance arrives. Thomas Brooks is standing in the hotel room. He picks up a hair comb from the dresser, puts it in his pocket. This will come back. Um, And then he gives the following statement to the two police officers that have finally been called by someone. And he said, officers, I'm not surprised. I've expected this for a long time. My boy has been in scrapes with girls before this, and I expected this would happen. A girl named Florence Burns has made threats against my son. Oh, snap. Florence Burns. Florence Burns. Flo Burns. Who's a... Florence Burns. Tell me everything about this this girl. Florence Burns was born Easter Sunday, April 9th, 1882. My word. Her parents were both first-generation Americans. The literal Lord's Day. The literal Lord's Day. Uh, her parents were both first-generation Americans. Her father, Frederick Burns, was the son of Scottish immigrants and an insurance broker in Manhattan. He was also the announcer at athletic events, track, field, walking, bicycle, racing, and was known as Silver-Tongued Fred Burns. Oh. He also notably had a 32 caliber starters pistol at home uh, for those occasions when he both announced and started events. And both his wife and daughter Florence were markswomen who had won prizes for their shooting. Oh boy. Florence's mom was born Henrietta. V- Sounds like a family you don't want to fuck with. Yeah, though. really. <laughs> they all have guns. Um, <laughs> like, what do they live? We're really in? good. Like, what do they live in the South? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Florence's mom was born Henrietta Vanderbosch and her father Wilhelm Vanderbosch. Wilhelm Vanderbosch. 
had been one of John Roebling's chief engineers during the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge some well, years before. We love Roebling. Love if, Roebling. If you're from Williamsburg, like I am, there's a whole street called Roebling. Mm. Of course. Why have I never made that connection? Yeah, that's Roebling of, of Williamsburg of, of Bridge fame. Fabulous. Uh, so this Burns family is all around solidly upper middle class people. Florence was a bit of a black sheep in the family in some ways. She wasn't a good student. She went around with a wild crowd of boys in Brooklyn where she lived. Her dad even went so far as to take Florence to Montreal and enroll her in a convent school, which I think is like the 1902 Catholic equivalent of sending your son to military school to like get him to shape up. Uh, instead, unhappy Florence was made fun of by the other girls. And so she ran away and managed somehow to get back to Brooklyn on her own from Montreal. Uh, so she was sent to a farm in New Jersey, like you do, to try again to shape her up, I guess. Uh, but she horsewhipped the farmer and ran away again. So, wow, girls got spunk. She got them spunk. Um, so much for reining her in. Uh, Florence ends up deeply involved with the Bedford Avenue gang, sometimes known as the Bedford Avenue Hounds. Ooh, the Hounds. Now the Bedford Avenue Hounds hung around Bed Stuy, um, so literally between Bedford and Stuyvesant Avenues. Um, this was, again, a middle-class area with beautiful row houses, upper-middle-class professionals. And as far as gangs go, these guys aren't exactly the mob. They're a little bit um, a little, a little bit prissy for, for being called the Bedford Avenue hounds. Um, I say good man. It's <laughs> basically it. These are all young men and some women who like wear diamonds and corsets and like brightly colored vests and long overcoat tails like a circus ring mask. Okay, can we be the Bedford gang for, for Halloween? Oh my God, yes. Yes. That's what I want to do. 100% just, just yes. Be the Bedford. Like, who are you? We're the Bedford <laughs> gang. The Bedford Avenue hounds. We're the hounds. We're fools. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, and so they they look like this and yet they walk around with baseball bats i guess to make them look threatening um and they do all sorts of cons to get money to pay for their sort of frivolous wild lifestyle now the gang was also known for ruining young women whether through seduction or violence um they often spend time at bader's roadhouse in coney island which was a hotel bar restaurant what have you on ocean parkway near the railroad station Walter, our victim, meanwhile, was born August 17th, 1881, to a newspaper typesetter. He became intimate with Florence through the gang, even though his best friend, Theodore Burris, uh, who was one of the most prolific gang members himself, admitted that he would stay away from Florence, or Flo, because, she, uh, because he knew that she would only cause him problems. Mm. Um, and once they became intimate, problems did, in fact, begin almost immediately for the couple. Um, Walter had what you might call a wandering eye, and uh, Flo's parents figured out that they were having sex and kicked her out. And so Flo began nagging Walter about marriage, which, as far as Walter concerned, was not on the table. Uh, and then she was like, I have this gun. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so by November 1st, 1901, Walter introduces Florence to his mom. And then on Sunday, they all meet at the Brooks family home, which was at 258 Decatur Street. And they go to church together. And then rinse and repeat the following Sunday. And then Florence stays for dinner. And then all of a sudden, she starts coming over two to three times a week. 
November 21st uh, marks the beginning of a three-week saga that a magistrate would eventually describe as follows. It is enough to say that the situation in that house is a peculiar and doubtful one. Walter shows up at home on the 21st with a very sick Florence and pleads with Mama and Papa Brooks to let her stay. And then Flo ends up staying at the Brooks' home for two weeks with pneumonia or typhoid or malaria or maybe it's just a really bad cold. Who knows? TBD, no one knows. It's 1902, so. <laughs> Everything's really dire. It's all on the table. It's all bad. <laughs> um, some speculate she might have been pregnant at the time. Their evidence is as follows. Uh, so the Brooks family never asked Flo's parents for any money to support her during her stay. In September, after only a month of dating, Walter had told a friend that Flo was, quote, in serious trouble, unquote, and he was responsible and that if she did not, quote, regain her health, which here would mean have a miscarriage or an abortion, then she would force Walter to marry her or she would, quote, revenge herself against him, unquote. Well, this sounds like case closed. I'm sure Uh, it's not, but it sounds it. (laughs) I mean, so, you know. A lot of plausibility for the pregnancy theory, I think. Um, regardless, Florence seems to have recovered from her mysterious illness. She continues staying with the Brooks family so she can pester Walter to marry her. She even told Mrs. Brooks that if Walter did not marry her, she would shoot him with her pistol. Or no, with her father's pistol, but still. Well, yeah, that makes sense. She she likes her gun. She really likes her gun. On December 11th, Thomas Brooks kicks Flo out. Uh-oh. Um, you know, he tells Flo to leave. You don't have to go home. You can't stay here. She tells her parents she's no longer welcome in their house she leaves after some resistance but returns at night and they let her in which is kind of weird and stupid um apparently full makes the announcement that she had gone home to get her pistol to shoot walter but couldn't find it so somewhere between december 13th and december 23rd a little vague she moves into a boarding house here's what happened around this time she tells her parents that she and walter are getting married her parents like oh this is great you can come home now time drags on they're like oh where's this wedding no wedding? Oh, no, no, no. And they kick her out again. So it's sort of a cycle at this point. Um, Walter and Flo do appear at the Brooks's reverend's, you know, church and ask to be married. But like stat, like right now. And the reverend's like, there's no witnesses. Why on earth are we in such a rush? No, come back later. So again, Flo gets evicted. And by the 23rd, she's moving into a boarding house arranged through a friend of Walter's. Flo tells the landlady she and Walter are engaged. Flo never pays her rent, uh, but she did steal some clothing and a silver bag. And then she switches to a different boarding house where she also doesn't pay rent. February 5th, 1902, Flo gets permission to move home because uh, Walter spoke to Flo's father and alludes to an idea that maybe perhaps he will marry her this time, maybe. Now, the catch is Walter has begun dating a 17-year-old named Ruth Dunn. And now we're at Walter's last week alive. Here's the timeline. February 7th, a woman, neither Ruth nor Flo, and Walter tried to get a room as husband and wife at the Hotel Lincoln, but sans luggage, they are turned away. Um, and also, just for the record, why people don't just start carrying, like, empty suitcases with them to, like, get around this is beyond me. Um, February 8th, a Saturday, Walter sends a letter to Flo saying it's over. They're done. February 9th, Walter and friends go to Madison Square Garden for day one of a six-day Walking contest, a walking contest. Yep. What? Like a like you like, walk? Yeah. Apparently, this was all the rage at the turn of the century for reasons that utterly elude me. <laughs> and this would be the original Mad Square Garden. Yes. Um, built by McKinney and White in mm-hmm. uh, Mad Square Park with a beautiful 
Augustus Santa Godin, uh, Diana on top yeah. of it, which was considered very scandalous because she was naked. Because she was naked. They tried to put, um, do you know this? They tried to put cover her up uh, because they were so horrified and they like put a cloth over her, but the first like strong wind and it just blew away. And they're yeah, like, well, we're not doing that We again. tried. <laughs> we tried, everybody. Um, regardless, at this walking contest, Walter tells his friends he's breaking it off with Flo. February 10th, Flo shows up at Walter's office, and this is going to be the first of, like, four visits she makes. Walter's not there. She leaves, returning at 2.30 and waiting until Walter returns to the office at 4. What, what date is this again? February 10th. Got it. They speak in the hall. She leaves. Walter takes his new lady love, Ruth Dunn, to dinner and a show. February 11th, Flo shows up at the office again, and once again, Walter isn't in. In fact, he never shows up to work that day, but he and Ruth go dancing that night. February 12th, Walter and Ruth go ice skating at Prospect Park. February 13th, Flo arrives at the office at 5 p.m. And Walter is there this time. Walter takes Flo to dinner and then goes to Madison Square Garden to watch that extremely exciting walking match. You can't miss it. Can't miss it. Gotta know who wins that. Like, Charlie Bowens, he's been training his entire life, literally, to win this walking contest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been walking for days straight. The finest goddamn walker I know. Charlie Bowens. February 14th. Walter and his business partner go to Newark, New Jersey on a business trip where they meet a couple of young women, chat them up, have sex at a hotel like you do. Harry, Walter's partner and friend, goes back to the office and Walter takes Harry's woman back to the hotel for another rollicking roll in the hay, I guess. And meanwhile, back in New York, Flo is sending a note uh, to Walter's office saying that she's going to be there around 11 to say goodbye because she's leaving for Detroit, which is an utter lie, but here we are. She shows up at 11. Walter's in there because he's very busy in New Jersey. <clears throat> having the sex. Uh, Flo leaves a note, goes to lunch, comes back. Harry's back at the office now and he doesn't know when Walter will return. At 5.30, Walter gets in. He says hello to the office staff, goes to his desk, rummages through his mail. He throws Flo's notes. Flo's notes? That's a funny phrase um he throws flo's notes in the waste paper basket and at 6 30 harry leaves and asks walter to see him out and as they walk harry begs walter not to see flo again um walter says that he can see the finish line so to speak uh the relationship is almost over he doesn't want to prolong it by avoiding her and if flo is really going to detroit they can have one big blowout date and things at night and harry would give her some money for the trip to like make it all nice and pretty and whatever. Um, Harry's unconvinced. Um, he made Walter promise him to meet him later so that Harry would know he's safe. They agreed on a meeting spot. Walter breaks off his date with Ruth to go out with Flo. And when Harry arrives at the meeting spot later that night, which happens to be Ralph Avenue on the L, lane, on the L train line, um, no Walter. Because, of course, Walter is at the Glen Island Hotel. And that brings us to the whatever the present is for us, February 15th, 1902. But why don't we take a break there? Certainly. We'll be right back. If you ever look at our logo, you may notice a cute, furry, black and white creature hanging out the window. That's Ted. When he's not hanging out inside the New York Mystery Machine, Ted is enjoying treats from BarkBox. BarkBox is the dog-obsessed company that's devoted to one goal, making dogs happy. 
It's a monthly subscription, totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your furry friends. BarkBox provides the best products, services, and content for pups and their people. Every box brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys and treats. Your first box ships immediately. Plus, BarkBox offers a 100% happy guarantee. If your pup isn't happy with their BarkBox, they'll work to make it right. So are you ready to spoil your pup with a BarkBox of their very own? If so, head over to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine. If you use our exclusive link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox valued at $35 when you sign up for multi-length plans. Okay, okay, Tedward. I'll say it again for them. Head to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine and get your pup some treats today. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. All right, we're back. So... Valentine's Day Melder. Valentine's Day Melder. The night of February 14th, something goes really wrong in Walter's hotel room. Yeah, then followed by like something going wrong in terms of like no one being good at their jobs. <laughs> yeah, seriously, what the hell? Like, hotels bad at their jobs, the doctors bad at their jobs, everyone's just bad at their jobs. Real bad. Like, just why are you so bad at your jobs? Mm. There'll be a couple more. Don't worry, there's a couple more moments for people to be bad at their jobs. God, this episode's gonna be like how people were bad at their jobs in 1902. <laughs> so we're we're now February 15th, 1902. The doctors remove a 32 caliber bullet, which is for the record, same as Fred Burns' pistol, uh, from Walter's head. It's too late, though. Walter is pronounced dead at 11.15 a.m. Now, Harry Cohen... Also, like, geez, like, from... he's This guy's dying Link, from yeah. one... From when it happens, through when they see him at, like, 1.30, through 7.30, where he finally... Yeah. Does he die at, like, at 7.30? Is that what it is? I mean... I don't know because he's pronounced dead at eleven fifteen a.m. Jesus. So I mean, he he's, he's at least been suffering for a suffering long time. For a long time, with the bullet in his head. Yeah. For whatever it's worth, he. I mean, he was clearly unconscious this entire time, which maybe is at least yeah, like merciful in some way. Yeah. Oof. Um, but it, it's really gratuitous that it, it took this long for somebody to treat him, or yeah, not even treat him, just like be a doctor. Be anyway. a doctor. So Harry Cohen informs the police that they should really take a look at Florence Burns, that she's, you know, probably involved somehow. Chances are the girl with the girl's been threatening him. Who's like, I'm going to shoot you. Might look into her. You may want to ask her what's happening. So Detective Sergeant William Colby, Detective Parker, Detective Schultz, uh, they all go to the Burns home in Flatbush. And here's how the conversation reportedly went down with Florence, according to the detectives from their testimony during the hearing and inquest as reported in the newspapers. Now, I'm going to find your copy of him. Oh, I get, I get to read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder who will read this time. 
I hope it's the old prospect. I I kind of, I mean, this no, is maybe a little it mean. It won't be the old prospect. I kind of want you to play all the roles here. Play all the roles? Yeah. There's a okay. few. So I'm reading for Colby. And Flo. And Flo. And eventually Mrs. Burns. And Mrs. Burns. Okay, here we go. Who's Colby again? Uh, he's the detective sergeant. Gregory. <clears throat> so this is Colby. Do you know Walter Brooks? Yes, I do. I saw him yesterday in his office. Did you have dinner with him? No. I left him at his office and then came straight home. I got here about seven o'clock, but my parents were at the theater, and my sister had gone to bed, so I went to bed. Did you know Walter Brooks was shot in a hotel? No. I wonder who could have done it. Have they found the pistol? Colby to Mama Burns says, Do you know what time she got home last night? Mama Burns says, Please don't ask me any question. Mr. Burns told me not to answer any questions about this. Flo says, I know I am suspected, and I am in a hole. Thank you, Adam. So at this point, the cops decide to bring her in. My favorite was Mrs. Burns. Mrs. Like, Burns was great. That was my favorite of all, the, of all the ones I just pulled out there. It was lovely. It was very, you know, the vapors. No. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> so they bring her in, but what they tell her is that she's going to be going to Hudson Street Hospital to see Walter. Note, they have not yet informed her that he's dead. Mrs. Burns asks if her husband can meet them there, and she asks her live-in nephew, Willie Vanderbosch, Willie Vanderbosch, to telegram Fred Burns in Manhattan. Hello, Fred Burns! Now, this is important, because per Virginia McConnell, the author of that book, um... This tells us a few things. One, it indicates that there's another party that lives in that hotel, in the hotel, in that house, who could have confirmed what time Florence returned home or not, besides Florence's theoretically asleep sister Gladys. But nobody ever asks, you know, her cousin Willie to confirm. Yeah. And two, it's clear that Burns's do not have a telephone, which is why Willie needs to go send a telegram to Fred Burns in his office, which means that Fred Burns could not have phoned home if he had begun hearing rumors to circulate about Walter's death. It's unlikely he would have sent a telegram home. And so Mama Burns seems to already know that something's up because she says, Mr. Burns told me not to answer any questions about yes, this. Yes, I remember reading that brilliantly in my, my finest Mama exactly. Burns voice. So this is something the prosecution highlights eventually. And, you know, notes that the, the Burnses seem to have already known about the shooting when the detectives arrived, and notably, Flo's defense attorney. Spoiler alert, she's going to need a defense attorney. Um, uh, he never contests this. So some speculate that the family did know, and they knew from Florence. Sure. Regardless, Florence isn't taken to the hospital. She's taken to the station. She's told she's being charged with a felony, but not what type. She was asked to show her hair combs, remember? Uh, oh, the hair combs, mm -hmm. because the hair combs. Right. And so she pulls out two. But she says she doesn't have a back comb, which is the same kind of comb that was found in the hotel. She said she never wears one. Or she has one, but, you know, it's <laughs> Just not <now>. here. <laughs> oh, I don't wear that one. <laughs> ever. Ever. I've never worn one ever. Mm -hmm. um, Florence answers a few questions, but then says, I decline to answer under advice of counsel. In actuality, her father and their attorney, a man named Foster L. Bacchus, who was a former DA for Kings County had been asking to see Florence for hours. And again, the quick presence of an attorney and the reference to advice of counsel suggests that the attorney had already been contacted well prior to this arrest. 
It's also worth noting that Mr. and Mrs. Burns were soon whisked away by Bacchus to New Jersey, essentially so that they would be out of subpoena range by the NYDA. So this causes some rumors about what could Flo have told her parents that would have meant that they're willing to stand with her, like they, they, they are on her team. But aren't willing to provide an alibi. <laughs> like that's an interesting yeah. dichotomy. And so an ex an ex boyfriend of Flo suggests that she may have told them that she and Walter were following the footsteps of another semi recent case, which was uh, a murder suicide pact. But that after Walter shot himself, or more likely she shot him, she got frightened and had second thoughts. Yeah. Now. Throughout all of this, it's worth noting that Flo has been really cool and calm. According to the newspapers, she's, like, indifferent. And it's only the attempt of the the press to get her picture that, like, seems to truly upset her. Now, the magistrate in charge of this case uh, agrees to sort of keep it quiet because he knows Fred Burns from a college sports thing. And so he arranges for it to be a, a preliminary hearing. He refuses bail, though. So Florence was sent to the tombs. Jesus. Now, isn't that, that Yeah. So the tombs is what the New York City prison was called at the time. Jesus. Um, it's separated by gender. And Florence's section was housing about 40 women serving sentences for prostitution and theft at the time. And the women's section, and the boys section of prison were overseen and ministered to by a prison matron, some Catholic nuns and lay women who were known as the tombs angels. Gosh. Which is... I think just terrific. Tombs Angels. And the de- the definitive sort of quintessential and original Tombs Angel was a woman named Rebecca Salome Foster, who oversaw lots of famous people at the tombs. Um, so in general, angels were responsible for moral support, right? So they come to you to your with you to your hearings. They have smelling salts in case you know there's some dainty fainting during court appearances. Um, they get people to beg for God's forgiveness for their crimes, and they sometimes intervene with the courts uh, if the angel thought that her ward was being unfairly treated. This is mostly not really here or there in terms of the case. I just thought it was fascinating. Um, and it is worth noting that Rebecca Salome Foster dies around this time. And so Flo would have been sort of on her own without oh, her wow. tomb's angel. Um, it's also fun to know because this helps place us in time a bit. That Flo is in jail at the same time as Roland Molyneux of Christmas arsenic, whatever poisoning oh. bromide fame. Um, he's awaiting his retrial at the time. Well, there it is. So anyway, Judge Julius Meyer uh, is presiding over Flo's hearing. And at this hearing, what the, D- the DA needs to do is just prove that Flo was more likely than not to have killed Walter. Not that it's like not beyond reasonable, you know, shadow of a doubt sort of thing. It's just more likely to than not. not Ma- real- like the opposite. Like, right. Usually the, it's supposed to be like, we just got to make sure there's no reasonable doubt. This one's like, we just got to make sure there's no reasonable doubt that she, di- that, that she didn't right. do it. Like it's um I watched a uh, we're proving she did it rather than that she's innocent right so there's um I watched a true crime documentary recently and it mentioned that in the French court system it's something like they call it like it translates to like a bouquet or a potpourri of evidence like you just need enough to be like well it's probably this and that's how you can get convicted which is crazy um so the chief witnesses or among the chief witnesses, was the Glen Island Hotel, Bellhop, George Washington. Um, There was a problem with his testimony. He said the person he saw that night was, quote, not a clear white woman, unquote, which most people took to mean it wasn't a white lady. Yeah. Um, But George Washington said, no, 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 what I meant was she was white, yeah. She just wasn't crazy pale. But 
regardless. She's like, she's like white, but not white. Like, right. You know. <laughs> um, he insists that he got a good enough look um, and that Florence matched the face that he saw that night. Now, there is a bit of a problem with this. Um, he was brought in when Florence was being questioned. And um, like they let him poke his head in the room. They were like, this the gal? And he's like, yep, that's the gal. But there's a little bit of confirmation bias that's, Yeah, there. that's confirmation. Like, is this her? Yep, sure. Yeah. That's that, her. That totally looks like her. That totally looks like her? That's, so that, that's totally her? That's a problem. Yeah. Um, that said, his description of the clothes she was wearing, or the person was wearing, matched the description that Harry Cohen gives of Florence's clothes when she visited Walter's office. So, um, Also on the stand was John Earl, the night clerk manager. His timeline was all over the place, um, but he was definite about the fact that Walter signed in at 9 p.m., there was an order for lemon soda at 10.30, and another couple came at 10.50. And anyone leaving the hotel would have had to pass by his desk, and he didn't see anyone leave. Um, but the problem is he couldn't identify any women because all the women who came that night at 9 p.m. stayed in the parlor while their men registered them. There it is. So they're still trying to just place her there. A little more definitive um, is that the DA brought in Arthur Cleveland Wibble. Oh, gosh. A 19-year-old train conductor on the Brighton Beach line. Of the Kings County Elevated Railway. Um, and he knew Florence by sight because uh, he had a little thing for her. And she was a very pretty and frequent rider since he was hired in May 1901. He said that he saw Florence that night. Now, late night trains at the time only had two cars. Um, so he was easily able to see who was coming and going. And on the night in question, he sees Florence get on the 1115 train at the Brooklyn Bridge stop. She sat three or four seats in the back of the, like, towards the back of the front door of the second car. Um, and he also nodded goodbye to her when she got off at her usual stop near her home. A newspaper stand owner at the Brooklyn Bridge stop also knew that, also knew Flo by sight and said that he saw her that night get on the 1115 train. Now, this is important because this undermines Flo's own claim of getting home by 7 p.m. and going yeah. to bed. Um... Now, the Glen Island Hotel is where today the World Trade Center Memorial is. Oh, wow. So it would have been a fairly quick hustle over the, the bridge from the hotel if you think about um, the timing that Earl gave, right? Like by 10.50, there's another couple. So she probably would have been scrambling after that time, maybe, to hustle over the bridge and catch the 11.15 train. But it's doable. Um, the idea is that she probably would have tossed the pistol over the side. There's... Yeah. The pistol's never really seen again. Um, yeah, but my question before, too, was like, there was no murder weapon, like, found. No. Just the bullet, which is Just the bullet, which is, you know, weapon. a little damning. Um, it's worth noting uh, that the coroner was like, yeah, Walter totally killed himself, which is ridiculous because of the awkward position. And there's no and gun And there's no found. gun. Um. And the Brooks' parents were also put on the stand, with Mrs. Brooks being so emotional that she collapsed in what was termed a seizure-like fit. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's also worth noting that um, when she was able to continue her testimony, they asked her to identify the comb that they had in their hands. Like, is this Florence's? And she was like, yes, that's Florence's. Um, but then when later on she was asked to pick it out of a lineup, she couldn't remember which one was which. So, again, confirmation bias. Now, Bacchus, the defense emphasized the points that this whole trial is a sham because evidence of Florence's statements should not have been admitted at all because Fred Burns and counsel himself were prevented from seeing Flo at the police station initially. Remember, they were trying to get to her for hours. When asked, the detective Parker uh, insisted she knew her rights, but there were some questions as to whether she was actually fully made aware of her rights. So Judge Mayer said he doesn't trust the detective's testimony and thought that, you know, 
testimony of Florence probably shouldn't have been admitted. So in the end, here's what the judge says. Walter Brooks was murdered. Florence Burns threatened Walter, but those threats were worthless because they were months before the murder, and she still lived with the Brookses even after these threats, which is kind of weird. So, like, that's nothing to him. None of the witnesses connect the comb definitively to the scene um, and also to Flo. And all of Flo's statements were thrown out. Um, and George Washington's identification of Florence was useless because of the, you know, confirmation bias and conflicting statements about skin color. So since nothing, in the judge's opinion, conclusively situates Flo at Glen Island with Walter, he discharges her. Flo's first words for the record were, oh, how hungry I am. But then she gives an actual statement to the press. She says, of course, I am very happy at the result of the hearing, but it was just as I expected. I was innocent, and I knew that Justice Meyer realized it. I cannot say what I will do now. I expect to go with some friends and rest up, as the experience I have passed through has been a dreadful one. But that wasn't the end of the legal proceedings, per se. There was a coroner's inquest to come to determine the legal, cost of, the legal cause of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the case of a homicide, what the jury does is give the name of the suspect most likely to have committed it. And if they don't know, they say it's committed by a person or persons unknown, right? Fun fact about this coroner, uh, questionable. Remember, coroners are elected at this time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he's not like misplaced the evidence questionable like the last coroner we talked about. Um but this coroner, Nicholas T. Brown, apparently during his campaign to be elected, was arrested for drunken disorderly conduct. Nice. So, like, really nailing it here with all of these medical professionals. Nice. Um, so, again, among the witnesses this time were the Bedford Avenue gang testifying. The Who, fl- us? The Bedford <laughs> Avenue <laughs> gang. Woof. Woof. <laughs> They testify that Florence had a pistol, and Joe Wilson, who had also briefly dated Flo, said that she used to keep it in her muff at times. So this inquest's verdict, 50 minutes of deliberation led to murder by person or persons unknown. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah, because like it was it's, clearly it's Flo. It's clearly Flo. But McConnell speculates that the re- this is because of the unwritten law, which I'd never heard of. Um, but apparently in the mid-19th through mid-20th centuries, um, there was this unwritten law that originated in the South but was present all over the country. And she writes that it basically applied to um, initially to, to men whose wives were cheating on them. And so husbands, father, brothers who discovered that a man had dishonored their wife, daughter, sister, um, you know, could take their revenge essentially. And eventually this get switched around so that, you know, if a woman is abused, she can uh, take her revenge out on the person abusing her. And even though it's clear she murdered the person, they're kind of be like, you know, it's probably fine. And just look the other way. That's the idea here. Uh. Um, But the thing is, it was also applied in cases where like, or, or rather acceptable situations under the unwritten law were also things like he promised to marry me because I was pregnant so I killed him that happened a couple of times and the jury was like yeah not poor, that person it's totally fine because poor, they're just looking the other way poor girl you know it's definitely not you definitely not and weirdly crazily as late as 1977 this sort of practice was still true my word um so anyway, Flo ends up going home July or August 1902. She elopes with a man 10 years, her senior, of questionable background. Um, 
And Flo's life is a bit of a roller coaster after that. Alcoholism, possibly prostitution, admits to adultery, ends up in prison for some con scheme, has three disastrous marriages, and then later finds her person and stays married with him for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, her ashes are buried in uh, Evergreen Cemetery not far from Walter's grave. My word. Interesting little turn of events in the end. Yeah. Buried not too far from each other. So it's 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 a crazy case because She's it's... like, I will rest with you yeah no matter what still still got him in the end i mean she did she did get him in actually at the first yeah, like this is literally <laughs> like not an unsolved murder no this it's is, so clear this who is this is very solved this is flow but good on her to get out of it i guess <laughs> I don't know. like it's one thing to use the unwritten like i'm fine with the unwritten law and this you know like this person has you know been abusive and so i'm gonna kill him in his sleep so i can just like i get that i'm okay with that actually it's almost like self-defense like right. this person's gonna beat me up right it doesn't fit the legal definition yeah. but like let's be real about it i'm not like cheering for murder by the disclaimer right. we do not we support don't, right. murder. please don't murder people don't murder people there's other ways but but you know but the fact that it could be applied to i'm pregnant and he won't marry me it's kind of crazy yeah, that's crazy pants yeah and she wasn't pregnant. We don't know. There's some suspicion know. that maybe she was, but if is there a baby? So no. So she it was McConnell a- ends up doing some, and I love this, uh, some census research, and finds in the 1910 census there isn't any baby of the right age living with any of the relatives of Flo, yeah. which would have made the most sense. So I, if there was a baby, perhaps that sickness in November is like a miscarriage. Um, who knows. Well, thanks for that doozy of a, a Valentine's Happy Day Valentine's treat. Day. Happy Valentine's Day, folks. We hope that uh, you remain unmurdered this Valentine's Day. Um, and also don't murder anyone, please. Thank you. Be sure to, uh, on this wonderful day of days, to um, head on over to iTunes and Spotify and give us a five-star review, a little Valentine's gift for us. Um, it's a five-star rating on Spotify, but a five-star review and rating on iTunes. Um You'll be entered into win. Oh, we'll, we'll do our February winner next week. Right. We didn't do it this one. Yeah, I got to dust the ticker tape machine. Dust the ticker tape machine. I'll do that next month. Um, um, but also head on over to our socials at NY Mystery Machine on Facebook and Instagram at NY Mysteries on the Twitter. If you want to support the show, you head on over to patreon.com slash NY Mystery Machine and you can become a patron of the show for as low as $3 a month. And my word, what a um, what an interesting, interesting time. Be alive. <laughs> to be alive and to be murdered. And to be murdered. Well, folks, um, this has been a, a wonderful Valentine's Day treat. We hope that um, your Valentine's Day ends a little better than... A lot better, maybe. <laughs> a lot better than uh, a certain gentleman who had really bad medical help oh, God. in 1902. Well, I have been... Adam Mays. I'm Christina Marinelli. And thanks for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tammy Hall, but for lovers and, and ghosts. ghosts. <laughs>